This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. As we jump into today, I just want you to know, uh, and this is more for me than for you, I'm not going to get this finished today. Um, We're going to do this in two parts. This is too important for me to rush. There's too much... Uh, nuance for me to rush through this. So we're going to go as far as, as we can, and then we'll pick up where we left off next week. If you are looking for resources in between now and then of what's going on in Israel and the Middle East, I have been there personally, my wife, my son, uh, many of you in this room. Uh, there are many great resources out there. Some of them are, are obvious, like you know Jack Hibbs, like people that you guys know who are out there, Amir Safarti. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we at Conduit, instead of having a Wednesday night service, we release a, a podcast every Wednesday. Uh, we call the Deeper Podcast. And the last three weeks, we have uh, hit this head on. We've been interviewed uh, Catherine Vanderbeek from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we, we've really gone deep with this. Fouad Masri from Beirut, Lebanon. We, we really want to give you guys the right information, true information. And then just like the Bereans, you guys look in the word of God and you see for yourself if you think these things to be true. And then one last resource, which is a gift from our very own Donna Van Leer, who is an author. She has written a trilogy Uh, which is actually pretty cool. Like the first two thirds of the book is fictional. The last one third is uh, the biblical lens. And it's literally the trilogy with Daniel, uh, Ezekiel. uh, And the other one is uh, Jacob, the time of Jacob's trouble. All three of them are out there. And for those of you guys whose butts pucker when we start talking about books, um, 100% of you buy the trilogy this morning, 100% of the money is going to help our brothers and sisters in Israel. We've already been sending money to our brothers and sisters who are needing protection. Uh, we've, well, I won't say we're broadcasting. We've, we've helped them, uh, helped them, and we will continue to do so. Even if you don't want the books, uh, one of the drop-downs on our menu right now is for Israel, and 100% of that is going to help our brothers and sisters in Israel right now who are suffering under severe violence and threat. So just know that is an option for you as well. So the question for us, right, is, is this the end? I'm old enough to remember 1988. Donna, you probably... Uh, old enough, like, uh, no, it was 1987, right? It was, it was, there were 87 reasons why in 87? Whatever it was, it was then the, he, he made a mistake and then he, oh gosh, I missed one. So then the next year it was like 89 or 88 reasons why, because he missed it. Now here's the thing, he missed it because Jesus said, don't do that. <laughs> He's like, don't be, don't be an idiot. Like that's, he could have used that Dwight Schrute advice, right? You know, what's the best thing you've ever said to me? Uh, don't be an idiot. And if an idiot would do that thing, I don't do that thing like that. Don't do that. If you're thinking I'm going to write a book that Jesus is coming back on this day. On the other hand, he told us we would know the seasons. Uh, Shannon and I have been traveling this week and I came back to a front yard full of leaves because my trees, which were beautiful and orange and are now not because all of the beauty is on the ground right now because the season is changing. So that thing that you might be sensing right now is the changing of the season. And the question is, what season are we changing into? Is this 
the end. And, and I, look, I know people think, well, it's the end. Everybody thinks uh, about the end, and we've been thinking about the end forever. And just so you know, the Christians, we don't have a corner on that market of wondering when the end is, of when the return of Christ and the, and the newness will begin. Every religion has a version of that. The Muslims, uh, it depends on if you're Sunni or Shia. Like if you're Saudi Arabia, you have a version of what, uh, of what it looks like for the return. Uh, in Shia, Iran, they're looking for the return of the 10th Imam who has disappeared and supposedly hiding somewhere and he's, he's coming back and he can, uh, we can hasten his return with bloodshed. So when you see the violence of Iran, understand that's not on accident. The, the Hindus, they believe that Vishnu, like there's this idea that there's going to be this coming destruction and then they were going to restore again into a new place. The Buddhists, even the Buddhists, Right, rub the Buddha belly and he comes back. That's actually not it. They actually believe that there's a new Buddha coming, but first the earth must degenerate. Christians aren't alone in that. Not only Christians, if you're not believing in religion, you don't have a religion, understand that the secular humanists, they have the same thing. They're all predicting the end as well. Many of you may remember Stephen B. Hawking predicted that by 2600, we're all gone, vaporized. Now, later in his life, his new prediction is that AI is what is going to destroy humanity. And not to be outdone, Elon Musk agrees. Like, secular humanists believe, and by the way, just like Hawking, Elon Musk didn't make this up out of thin air. The only hope for humanity is to escape the planet and to go to Mars, like literally, you wonder why the dude is spending billions of dollars, hundreds? We got to get out of here because we're not going to survive. That's a secular humanist idea. The climate scientists do not disagree with that. They have their version of an eschatology. And by the way, all of their eschatologies include us having to escape this planet. Christianity does not predict a escape of this planet. It is, predicts a recreating of this planet. We are actually going to be on a planet. Like that's the end. And Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm going to set up my kingdom. The government's going to be on my shoulders. It's not like it's, heaven isn't just a consolation prize because this sucked so much. You might, oh, here, this sucked a lot, but here's a consolation prize. You get to go to heaven. No, he's coming back to set it up. So that's the Christian version. And the question is, not what does Elon Musk think about it? Not what does Stephen B. Hawking, he's gone anyway. Not what does Buddha, not what does Allah, right? But what does God say about the end? In the Christian faith, what does he say about the end? And what we can know is this. Our Jesus was born in Israel he was raised in Israel. He was crucified in Israel. He was resurrected in Israel. He is returning to Israel. Israel is not a small thing. Like the Bible is a story, 66 books, 40 authors, and one common thread through it all is a literal Israel. Right? That's not a small distinction. And when you look at the modern context of what's happening right now, I wanted you to at least... Get a visual. I mean, in the 11 a.m. service, we are the most educated, right? Those 9 a.m., you know, they don't really study. But the 11 a.m., you guys are smart. I'm just kidding. They're actually pretty smart. 
They're usually fact-checking me. Hey, that wasn't right. Um, this is the modern situation right now, the modern state of Israel. We have been there. Uh, we have stood in many of these places. You'll notice in Jerusalem, the orange is what is considered West Bank. That is Palestinian territory. Gaza, which you're hearing a lot about on the news, is about a 10-mile long, three-mile wide strip of land that goes all the way back. You guys remember a story of a guy named Samson, Gaza. Like the, the Gaza is throughout scripture. It was originally controlled by Philistines when the Jewish people came in there. Uh, Golan Heights, we have stood on the Golan Heights, my wife, uh, a group of us in 2020, and we were actually looking over into Lebanon. This is a true story. We were praying for our friends who are missionaries in Lebanon, Matt and Julie Beamer, Matt and Julie Hadabaugh. And you know, we're praying, God bless it. Club 1040 and hands are extended. And uh, we, in Jesus' name, amen. And CJ, like the, as soon as I said, amen, the guy, his voice goes, hey. And I, I didn't know anybody was even standing there. He goes, hey, did you say Club 1040? I work for them. And by the way, this is not a hot spot for Israel trips. Like this is a place where you can hear the bombs in Damascus. Like it's not like, not normal people go there. So with him standing there, it was just the, the big, great, big, small kingdom, right, of God, right in that moment, getting to see that God is, God loves the Lebanese people. God loves the Palestinian people. God loves the Jewish people. God loves you and me as well. Uh, I want to start by saying this before I dump, a whole bunch of information on you. I, this church, stand with Israel unequivocally, unapologetically. We stand with them and their fight for humanity and for civilization. I'll tell you why, but this is, I want to start with that. I'm not just going to say that without now building a case for why. God does not call us to blindly stand with Israel. He doesn't call us to blindly stand by anybody. I want to show you today and next week that there is a biblical case for this. There is a geopolitical case for this. And there is a historical case for this. They do not contradict each other. They synthesize perfectly with each other. We can stand with them with confidence and we can stand just like, by the way, in Germany, there were German people who were good people who did not support what Hitler was doing. Just like there are people in Palestinian territories who, who do not support what Hamas is doing. And we stand and pray with them as well because we are against evil and we are for the goodness of God on the entire earth. So, that said, these are the six questions we're going to try to answer between now and next week. So if you're good at math, the attempt will be three this week and three <laughs> next week. <laughs> I know it's a little early for math. Question number one, what or who is Hamas? It's not hummus. That's much more tasty. Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's been designated as a terrorist organization since 1996 or 97, which is why it is an unbelievable and yet at the same time completely believable that the UN just this week voted, 147 countries voted to condemn Israel, only seven voted to support Israel 
because it's just madness. But the UN, it took them four years after Hamas was doing suicide bombings inside of Israel to finally say that they're a terrorist organization. And now suddenly here we are, 20 some odd, 30 years later, and they're still saying that Israel is the occupier and the terrorist and supporting Hamas. That is not only stupid, it's demonic. Now, who or what is Hamas? Let's start with the history of Hamas. I'm actually old enough and geeky enough and nerdy enough to remember this. In 83, Yasser Arafat, you remember Yasser Arafat? Anybody old enough? He wore like a picnic cloth around like his head. He was head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Violent man. But he wasn't violent enough for a faction of radical Islamists who would call themselves Hamas. Hamas is an acronym that loosely stands for basically the uh, support of uh, Palestinian people against Israel. It's an acronym in Arabic. It's an Arabic word that means uh, zeal, right? It's also a Hebrew word that means violence. They didn't choose the word by accident. They chose a word from the Hebrew language, made an acronym out of it with an attempt to destroy Israel. That's their goal. And you don't have to believe my words about that. They said it. Uh, it's really obvious. That if you want to know what someone wants, maybe just listen to what they're saying. You hear you know, the, the legacy media wringing their hands. Oh, I wonder what they want. Well, why don't we just ask them? Anderson Cooper. They said Israel will exist and continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. That's the opening paragraph of their charter document when they formed. They went on to say, Article 7, the day of judgment would not come, right? When I talked about the hastening of the return of their Mahdi, until the Muslims fight and kill the Jews, right? That's, that's what they say they wanted. In 1987, Hamas was founded in Gaza by Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, a Palestinian cleric, which was an offshoot of the Egyptian-based Muslim Brotherhood. If you're somewhat of a news junkie, you've heard of the Muslim Brotherhood in recent years. Uh, by 1988, it published its charter calling for the destruction of Israel, uh, the establishment of an Islamic state in its place. When you hear the phrase, from the river to the sea, they mean from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. And what they mean is pushing Israel out, destroying it not only as a state, but destroying and murdering them as a people from the river to the sea. 1991, the military wing was founded. It was uh, just like an organization, but then they form a military wing. When you hear Hezbollah, that is an, uh, a Lebanese version of it. In, uh, in the Levant, like in Iraq, that's uh, ISIS. We've heard of ISIS. That's their version of it. Uh, Hamas is the Palestinian version of those types of organizations. And so they began suicide bombings by 93. Again, I'm old enough to remember. Pictures on the news. You'd be sitting in a coffee shop in Jerusalem, and then next thing you know, you've been blown to bits by a suicide bomber. Uh, it, let's go to 1997, which is after all those suicide bombings. It was finally that the UN would declare them as a terrorist organization uh, specifically because of Iran's supported use of explosives and rockets along with suicide bombings and kidnappings to target Israel. Parenthetically, October 7th, which was just a few weeks ago, when we were there last year, I mean, Ethan was with me, like, while we were there, like, uh, terrorists were taking their automobiles. 
because they can't get, it's harder to get bombs inside of Israel now. The reason, why do they put a fence around Gaza? They're just trying to keep bombs out of Israel. So what's happening now is they were driving their car. It was a, this happened two times, maybe three, while we were in Israel. Children standing at a bus stop and a, a terrorist would literally drive right into the middle of the crowd and kill as many of them as he could. We were standing on the southern steps of the temple when we heard the sirens go by as children were murdered by radical Islamic nut jobs. 2000, the deadly intifada, it's, it's just another word for an uprising of Palestinians against Israelis. And now we're getting a little more recent history and some of you might remember that, the violence that was unfolding, which basically resulted in 2005, Israel, in an attempt to make peace, said, we'll give you Gaza if you'll quit blowing up our people. Of course, they didn't, so they built a security fence around Gaza. Again, trying to keep out bombs, suicide bombers. In recent history, they actually began to allow Gazans to come back into Israel to work on some of the local farms or for jobs. And, and did they have to go through security? Yeah, and so did I last week. We, I mean, we had to go through security to make sure I wasn't carrying peanut butter on a plane or whatever it is that we're doing in, with our little security theater that we do here in America. Um, but that's the kind of security. They can freely go, uh, Palestinians, into Israeli territory. They just have to go through some checkpoints. You know who can't go the other way, by the way? Jews. If you go on a journey with us to Israel, there are spots, for instance, Bethlehem, where the guide, except our guide wouldn't do, our guide, I tell you what, this girl, whew, man, she's got courage. Because once you're in a Palestinian territory as a Jew, your life is in grave danger and you are not guaranteed rescue by the IDF forces. So most times, most guides, you drop them off at like a McDonald's or a coffee shop. You go into the Palestinian territory and then you pick them up on the way out because Jews are not safe to go into Palestinian territory, whereas Palestinians are safe to go into the Israeli territories. Now, 2006, they won a surprise victory in an election. This was a part of the United States brilliant idea to let's spread democracy around the world. One voice, one vote. Sounds great. Except that uh, they voted in Hamas. It's like in being in Afghanistan and voting for Osama as president, right? And that was the last election. Once they were in power, no more elections, right? We're getting close to 20 years now and no more elections. They overthrew the forces local to the PA president, Mahmoud Abbas. Now, if you remember the map, the tiny little corner of Gaza and the West Bank, those are both Palestinian territories. But Hamas is so violent and so radical that the president of the PLO, who is also radical and violent, is not radical and violent enough. He cannot go into his own territory without threat of being killed himself. Imagine our own president not being able to go into a city or a place because the people will kill him there and there's no way to protect him. That is how violent Hamas is. And when you see people marching and supporting Hamas from London to Boston to Frankfurt, they're either idiots or, they, or they're evil. There's really no middle ground because that's what you're supporting. Now the question, what is Hamas, right? What do they want? What are they doing? To October 7th, they, they sealed the deal with it when they breached the security fence. And I don't know how many children are still left in here, so I won't go into the details, but they're readily available. The violence, the absolute slaughter, more Jewish people were murdered on that day in one single day since the Holocaust. 
murdered. And not just Israeli citizens. There were 43 young men and women from Thailand. There were half a dozen or more from Nepal, all over the world. And one of the stories was in the Wall Street Journal yesterday of a Nepali citizen who has uh, a, a violent terrorist was coming through his door was saying, no, no, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm not. He, he was murdered anyway, because it is about murdering Jews. But just like these other terrorist organizations, ISIS, the ones you've heard of, and maybe the ones you haven't, like Al-Shabaab, which is in Africa, setting up an Islamic caliphate is the ultimate goal, which leads us to the next question. What does Hamas want? Now, I could tell you what they want, or I could let the son of a Hamas founder tell you what they want. There's this young man named Yusef. His father was a co-founder of Hamas. He himself was a member of Hamas. He was arrested and held in an Israeli prison. Saw, even in an Israeli prison, how violent the leaders of Hamas were to their own people turned his back on Hamas, actually turned toward Christ, is a follower of Jesus today, and lives in hiding because if they find him, they will murder him. He knows what Hamas wants. So instead of me telling you, I'll let Yusuf. Hamas is a sick one. It's coming from the pit of hell, you know, and they need to be removed uh, from power. This is my message. As an ex-Hamas member, as a son of one of Hamas founders, that enough of this. If we don't stop them now, the next war is going to be deadlier. And only God knows what will happen next if Hamas is not finished as soon as possible. The people of Gaza are oppressed for so long and they had to endure siege, they had to endure violence, many wars, uh, uh, for the sake of Hamas' uh, uh, lust for power and for Hamas' political ambition. And Hamas has been trying for 35 years to destroy Israel. Finally, I hope that they will come to this understanding that Israel is going nowhere. If they insist on annihilating Israel, and of course, if Iran keeps on insisting uh, on this goal, this means the destruction of the entire region. This is the only uncertain outcome of this, because Israel is going nowhere. Unfortunately, now Hamas left Israel and the free world as well, with no choice uh, but to fight them and put an end for their violence. Uh, many civilians are dying, I understand this. Their blood is on the hands of Hamas, and Hamas only. I don't want somebody coming from London or somebody coming from the other side of the world to tell me what is the struggle of the Palestinian children. The Palestinian children, the Palestinian society has been hijacked by these criminals. And anybody who takes side, their side is participating in their crime. It's a fact that Hamas used civilians as human sheets. It's a fact. Then it's a fact that Israel called and warn civilians to evacuate buildings before they strike them. But in the meantime, Hamas put roadblocks to stop civilians from evacuating to safe zones. Hamas single misfire killed hundreds of refugees taking shelter at a hospital and they blamed Israel. 
We have a fundamental problem and we need to stop blaming Israel. We invited this upon our heads and the rest of the world. If they don't know the reality on the ground, it's better that they shut up. And enough involvement from people who don't care. They're just uh, warriors on keyboard, you know, and they're just storming uh, world capitals saying free Palestine, free Palestine. They don't know what the hell Palestine is. I am Palestine. And I say it's enough of Hamas. It's enough of the corrupt leaderships that they are killing our people, misleading them to hell. Listen to this. We are going to remove Hamas from power. Remember my words, okay? And Hamas did not only bring the wrath of Israel over Gaza. Hamas brought the wrath of God. You can find that interview on YouTube very easily. He goes on to say that he believes that there are millions of Palestinians that when Hamas is removed will actually celebrate because they have been living under this oppression for, well, since 2007. When you see people marching in London, when you see them in Portland, even with the signs that say things like queers for Palestine. This is actually kind of serious. Actually, it's very serious. When Hamas took over in 2007, one of the first things they did was purge infidels. Part of purging infidels was if you were gay or if you were even accused of being gay, you were handcuffed and taken on top of a building, not a very tall building, maybe two or three stories, because they didn't want you to die quickly and then threw you off of the buildings. So when you see queers for Palestine, it makes as much sense as chickens for KFC. It's like, yeah, we support the ones that want to kill and cook us. And look, I have empathy for them. They don't know. And if they do, then it's a demonic. And this is what I want to show you in Revelation 12, chapter four, is that when you see madness, which that's madness, right? Like madness is supporting the very people that actually want you dead. When you see paradox, by the way, in scripture, did God choose me or did I choose him? The Bible says... Yes. Okay, that's, that's a paradox. God thrives in paradox. When you see madness, when you see insanity, that's Satan. And so I've given you the geopolitical side of what Hamas wants. I'm going to give you a biblical picture of it. Revelation tells us. Uh, this is a, a great passage. It, it's speaking of a future moment of, of this great dragon. And in the scripture, the dragon is Satan, right? The, the picture here, it says that uh, its tail, the dragon, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. In this metaphor that uh, John is using, the, uh, the dragon, of course, is Satan. The woman is Israel and the child is Jesus. It's actually the Christmas story in Revelation. But from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, when God told Satan that her seed will crush your head, the plan of salvation had already begun. 
And that plan was going to go not just through any way, but through a specific people group. When you get to the Tower of Babel and all the language was the same. God divided the people. God divided the languages. And he says, and I'm putting my money, so to speak, my support on this horse and this race, this man, this land, Abram, who become Abraham, who was at that point living in Ur, which was in modern day Iraq, said, go to a place that I've yet to show you, which is modern day Israel, right? So he sends them there. And from that moment, the anti-Semitism, whether it was the Edomites, the parasites, what all the sites in the, from the beginning, they tried to destroy Israel. Anti-Semitism isn't just a bad idea. It's a demonic idea. So when that failed and the Jews were not wiped off the face of the earth, which at multiple times they could have been and should have been, they somehow survive, then Jesus is born in Israel, right? What do we say? A literal Israel. Jesus was born. Satan hates that plan. If I can destroy Israel, if I can destroy the Jews, I destroy the plan of God. And so now the child is born. Satan wants to destroy, right? The future is of a Jesus returning. I'm a geopolitical nerd. I have bored my wife so badly that I probably need to apologize for the rest of my life trying to, because I get all caught up in the weird stuff. And she actually does help me, by the way, because there are a lot of things that I think are fascinating that aren't. You know what I mean? Like Easter, uh, Saturday night of Easter. If you're in here for the uh, Saturday night Easter service, I'd like to formally apologize because I got a little too deep in the nerd side. And so she's like, Darren, it's Easter. Like, come back down to earth. But, but, but I've, I've studied this stuff ad infinitum, geopolitically, historically. And what I know is this, that this, the plan of Jesus to return to a literal Israel, the question you would have to ask yourself is, if he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first, right? 300, his no legs would be broken. He would be born not just in Israel, but in Bethlehem. And somehow he'd be raised in Nazareth. And somehow he's going to end up in Egypt. All these things he had no control over. He fulfilled all of them. Do you think that the guy that fulfilled all of those prophecies is not going to keep his word in return? Uh, you could believe that, but it defies credibility and it defies logic. He is going to return. And Satan's only plan from the beginning of Genesis 3 till now is to somehow destroy that plan and destroy as many people as possible as he goes through that plan. So this isn't just a geopolitical war. This is a demonic war straight from the pit of hell. So we've answered two questions. Who and what is Hamas? And what does Hamas want? Right? Who are they? They are a terrorist organization like, uh, like ISIS, right? Like terrorist, Osama, like terrorist organization. And what do they want? They want the destruction of Israel from the river to the sea. And now the question is, the Palestinian people themselves and the history of it. What is the history? How do we get there? Because what we're told right now by the, uh, the legacy media, by most universities and 100% on TikTok, is that the Jewish people are occupiers. Have you, have you heard this land? And, and an occupier or a colonialist or apartheid, those are words that are chosen not by accident. They are not titles, they are accusations. And they are based not on fact, they're based on narrative. And I want to start, like I started in the last one, I started with the geopolitical. This one I want to start with, the biblical. 
okay? Because long before there were any Arabs in the Middle East, long before Islam was in the Middle East, long before anybody was there, there was a guy named Abram. And the thing about going to Israel that's incredible is that it seems like you can literally just be digging your garden and stumble into a 4,000-year-old artifact that proves that the Jewish people were here. Archaeology, one of the things I've loved about going to Israel is how archaeology has proven over and over and over again that these stories in Scripture are not fairy tales, but facts. We've seen proof. There was a long time when uh, historians would say that, well, King David, he might have been a king, but he was just like a little Bedouin guy with a little small tribe. And then archaeology later would prove that, oh no, he was a king. Like they found coins with King David on it in Lebanon. Like the, the, the proof of David's existence that was questioned has been verified 100%. We, uh, we had the privilege to go uh, under uh, this tunnel that's being dug out by the city of David. And if you've not spent any time on the website of an organization called City of David, they have found what they believe to be the actual original temple of David himself. But they've also discovered the road that goes from the pool of Siloam all the way to the Eastern Gate. And it is under a neighborhood because in old uh, uh, cultures, when a culture was, uh, was defeated, they would just literally shovel dirt over the top of it and build a new one on top. They're, they're called tells. And at the bottom of this one, as far as they've gotten, they have found the road that Jesus walked on. They found the pool of Siloam. I mean, Jason and Laura, you guys were there with us? Like, And the thing is, is the Palestinians are so furious. In fact, if you read National Geographic articles about it, they talk about how unfair it is to be digging under their neighborhood. And I've I've been under there. They're bolstering it with all kinds of metal. It's it's perfectly fine. But the real reason isn't because uh, they're afraid of the neighborhood. The real reason is every time they turn a shovel, they prove that Israel was there long before anybody else got there. Thousands of years before. And so... Are there colonizers in Israel? Uh, yeah, the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the first ones. After the Philistines are gone, the Babylonians came in. They were followed by the Persians. Modern-day Iran was called Persia up until 1930s. After that, the Greeks came, Alexander the Great, and then it was the Romans, and then it was the Byzantines, and then it was the Islams, Islamics. It was then the Catholic Crusaders, then the Mongols, and then the Ottoman Turks, and lastly, the British Empire. So have there been occupiers in the land of Israel? Yes. They have dispersed the original inhabitants of the land and taken them to other places, and now calling Israel the occupier. If it is about who was there first, there is no question. It is non-negotiable. It is incontrovertible that the Jewish people were there first. If that is the standard by which we are to measure this thing. They got there long before. Now that said, the land that was promised to them by Genesis is they've never occupied this much land, by the way. This is the land that God promised them. Remember the very first map that I showed you of of what it actually is? This is the land that God had promised to them. Literally, when you talk about the West Bank, uh, you better be talking about the, the bank of the Euphrates River in Iraq because that's the land that was promised to them. That has never been 
yet occupied by them, and parenthetically, not even something that they're trying to accomplish right now. Uh, if you want to take a picture of this and study it later, this is, this, this is the history. I've given you the history starting at like 686 B, uh, BC. This is the history that starts in 1888. By now, the Ottomans are in control. World War I happens in 1914, uh, 15, 16. By 1918, uh, this is the British Empire is now given control. Uh, if you want a really long, really boring book, uh, The Guns of August uh, is, is a fascinating read to, to, if you're a super nerd. It goes through this whole story of how this happens and the British take over. And literally, they gave the land on the other side to Jordan. Now, by the 20s, Winston Churchill, who I love, love the cigars, love the pipe, the whole uh, penguin vibe that he had going on you know, uh, from Batman. Uh, and the whole part about him winning World War II, like that too. But he by 1923, uh, decided we're going to divide this whole thing up and give anything east of the Jordan River. You can see that slide, the picture number two. That's the Jordan River. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee right in the middle of that. And Jordan was on the other side. So by 1947, that's what ends up happening, is that now the UN plan is in place, and everything to the east of the Jordan River is now Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Um, which is a whole story. The guy, uh, King Abdullah, is actually an ancestor of the original. It, it's literally a father-to-son, father-to-son thing. When you get to 1949, after the Arab-Israeli War, Jordan attacks. They end up taking more of Israel. By 1967, many of you remember the Six-Day War. This is the new line. After attack from the north, the south, the east, and the west. By uh, 1979, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, 13 Days in September is a great book to read if you can, if you can stomach the uh, liberal mindset of the author. He does tell the story of Jimmy Carter uh, and the naivete he had in trying to negotiate the peace between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat, between those who was Egypt and Israel. But that was where the lines began to be drawn uh, after that war. By 19... Uh, well, 1979, those are the, that's the West Bank. And then by 2005, after the Oslo Accords, the Gaza disengagement, this was all thanks to uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, all trying to negotiate. Uh, this actually leads us to the borders where we are today. Inside of that is Jerusalem. Uh, inside of that are many of the sites, like I said, Bethlehem, which you can't even get into uh, if you're a Jewish person. But this is the, uh, the dark green is actually the Palestinian territory itself. The little buffers around it are protections where Israel has the ability to protect itself from suicide bombers and from violence as much as it can. It turns out it's pretty hard to stop somebody who just wants to drive your car into a crowd of people. But for the most part, they've been able to avoid gunfire uh, and bombs until October 7th. And by the way, in the last few years, Israel has loosened their restrictions on Gaza specifically so that uh, they could try to broker peace. And one of the reasons why Netanyahu is in trouble with his own people right now is he's made some decisions that, have res uh, that were either naive or just he took a risk that was wrong. And when I say that we support Israel, the land, that things, I want you to know that that is not uh, a blanket statement. The way that Netanyahu handled COVID is damnable. Um, just like our country, I support our country, but there are certain things our country have done that I would rather they not do, just like you, right? I, I, I didn't enjoy wearing a mask any more than you did. But 
I say that to say that I support our country in the same way that I support the people of Israel and the right to freedom. And I'll say it a different way. If you support freedom, if you support freedom of speech, I was talking to a friend yesterday. Uh, we were chatting online while I was on a plane, and he has a friend uh, that has been in communication with him, just firing him off uh, different messages. And, but one of the things that he said was, yeah, I'm actually a Christian, but because of where I live, I can't tell you that. Now, he's fully in support of Palestinian rule in the area, and at the same time saying, but I can't tell the people around me that I'm a Christian because I will be killed. It's too dangerous. The, the point being that if you, if you, if you embrace freedom, you cannot embrace Islamic rule. It, they are incompatible. It's an intellectually dishonest. One of the countries we work in in North Africa uh, is considered a moderate Islamic country. When I visit there, the money that we have sent over that actually pays for people to have the right to uh, be on our staff, to be the church planters, uh, we bring it back because we have to let the U.S. government know who they are so that they know that we're not funding terrorists. It's just a U.S. law, and we do that. Now, the danger of that is if I show up at an airport with that list in my hands, all I've done is given this government a database of who they're going to arrest, throw in prison, and take all their stuff. So we write it, this is a true story, on very thin paper so that I can eat it and swallow it if we get arrested. That's in a moderate Islamic country. If you support freedom, if you support freedom of religion, you cannot support radical or even moderate Islamic rule. It's intellectually untenable. It's their religion, their decision. But it is an, like, the irony of, of the protesters right now protesting for freedom in support of an organization that has no intention of giving them freedom is an intellectually untenable position. Uh, boy, we don't have time for any of this. So this is where we're going to leave off for next week. But here's what I want to ask you in the few moments that we have because I want to offer you some hope. I can almost feel the, oh, now what do we do? Next week, I'm going to answer those questions. The, one of them, why are so many Western young adults, even regular adults, why are they raging against Israel? I'm going to answer the question of, did God replace Israel with the church? And I'm going to answer the question, is this the end? That's next week. How's that for a cliffhanger? It's like you've been watching Amazon, right? Ah, next week. But it's not like Netflix where you can just binge right through me. Like, I, I, you got to wait. It's like the old days. We, <laughs> I don't know if you kids know this, but we used to have to wait till next week to find out what happened on the A-team. <laughs> Revelation 19. Here's the hope. Jesus is returning. Amen. He is returning, it says, for a bride. It talks about the bride who is, Revelation 19, the bride who has prepared herself for the marriage. And what I want to ask you to consider this week is, are you ready for the wedding? See, Shannon and I have been married 29 years, December 3rd. Most of them happy. 29 happy years, most of them happy years, right? I've been happy way more years than, because I'm not the easiest guy to live with. <laughs> but here's what I want you to hear me say. When we got to the altar, Shannon didn't say, hey, babe, 
in our vows, till death do us part. Oh, and by the way, uh, I've got a few extra boyfriends that I want to keep around just in case. it's, It's you, I love you, I want to follow you, I want to be married to you, and I want to kind of keep, you know, my options open. That's... It's bonkers. I didn't, I didn't say that to her either. Hey, babe, you are so smoking hot. But man, there's this one girl. If I could just keep her number and just, just in case. In our modern context, when we hear the word repentance, I was, we just spent a few days with John and Lisa Bevere, and he really inspired me with this idea. When we hear the word repentance, it's, it feels like this pejorative, sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? A sloppy, fat, preacher sweating, screaming at you, right? Like that repentance, maybe you didn't, you probably didn't grow up in that church. Anyway, but it's pejorative. It feels so negative. But when Shannon and I got married, we turned away, repented of our past and committed to follow each other for the rest of our lives. Repentance isn't a buzzkill. It's beautiful. He's coming back for a bride that has prepared herself for him. Are you prepared or have you got a lover on the side? Today, we're going to worship just a little while longer, but I'm going to ask you to consider something as our prayer partners come to their corners. Is there something you've been holding on to that you just need to let go of? Have you got another lover, so to speak, in your life? Is it your career Is it some blatant sin? We talked about pornography just two weeks ago. Is there something that you're holding on to that you need to repent from today to prepare yourself? I'm not talking about issues of salvation. I'm talking about being what Romans or Revelation 19 says, robed in righteousness. There's connection between purity and power. And in this next season that we're in, you need to be in power more than ever. Father, worship is us just laying our lives down as a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12 tells us. Yeah, we can worship with our voices, but our real worship was with our lives. So today, Lord, I pray that as you're moving in our hearts as we leave, that you continue to show us the areas that I've not set on the altar the areas that I've tried to hold on to from my past. Lord, I want to be a faithful. Faithful like I am to my wife, I want to be faithful to you. It's not asking too much of me to to be faithful to Shanna. It's not asking too much. It's, It's the appropriate thing. That's Romans 12, it's the appropriate, a living sacrifice, that's the appropriate response to what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that in our hearts today, that as we leave here, that you remind us of what you need from us. Show us those things that we're holding on to as we prepare ourselves for your return. To be the, the bride that is radiant and clothed in righteousness and good work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, I hope you can make it next week. If I, you might be thinking, oh, what about this? What about that? Before you send the email, just come back next week 
it. You know what I mean? And if I don't get to it, then you can send all the emails you want. But this is a two-parter on purpose because there's so much. Um, but it's enough for today to walk away knowing that, I, that I'm going to be a, a bride, so to speak, that is faithful, faithful to Jesus. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. <laughs>